0: Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. I did not know that the deacons were going to be preaching once a year. Now I know, and great, great to know that I'm the jump starter. But it's all for the glory of God, is that correct? Yeah. We come here to serve our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, our King, Amen. who we serve. We are subjects to our King. Here, we're going to continue on the sermon series on the book of Romans. And I'm going to take over on chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, as we're going step by step, little by little. Here we do expository preaching, which is verse by verse. But we also exposit, we also explain, and we also have this as an application for our daily practice. So we always want to remember that. So if you're able, please stand for the reading. Of the word of God. Will be in Romans chapter 3. This is in reverence to the Lord. Let's begin. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God by no means let God be true though everyone were a liar as it is written though you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged that is the inerrant word of God let's pray dear precious Lord our maker our sustainer our Lord the one we serve it is gracious of you to have given us your word where we can read it, where we can meditate on it. And it serves as our daily practice in our lives because we love you and we obey you. Please consecrate this time, Lord, as we go through your word and we expose it on the beauties that have been written down. And all this we do in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. So as we've been going through the book of Romans, we're seeing a systematic breakdown of why the world cannot achieve salvation on their own. It has to be a work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of man. And that's the beauty of it because... If God were actually partial, what would he find in us that would grant us salvation? There would be nothing. Here, with the Lord working in us, he is giving us the gift. And we're going to see how Israel, who was given the oracles of God, who had the advantage, who had the covenant, how they rebelled... And ultimately, it shows that the Holy Spirit had not worked in all of Israel, the entire nation. But there was always a remnant. Those were the called out ones. And that's what now we call the church. So we're going to go through these four verses. As first, we're going to look at the survey of Israel, kind of a brief history of Israel, what the Lord did and how he worked with them and how they responded then we're going to see how God works in covenants our Lord has been gracious enough to make covenants with us where he keeps them even though at times we do not keep that covenant we're going to see how God gave them the oracles as a rule of life and how instead of Following them and obeying them because they love God. They turned them into a burden. And into traditions of men. We're going to see God's faithfulness in his promises. And that is one of the greatest things that we have. That we know that God is faithful. While we are faithless sometimes. And actually a lot of the time. I know that in my life sometimes and either in anxiety or something that's going on and I'm like what am I going to do how am I going to how am I going to get out of this and instead of giving it straight to the lord and saying lord i am called to do what is right and you take care of the rest and guide me with your holy spirit and with your word and then we're going to see god's justice in his judgment because god is perfect he is holy And his justice is true, correct, and right, even when he judges his people and the world. So to begin with the survey of Israel, we're going to begin with the certain section of verse 1 where it says, Then what advantage has the Jew? And you ask yourself, well, what advantage does the Jew have? They were given a lot. God worked with them. Sometimes, even with Moses, it was face to face. And the people saw the miracles. Yet they looked at those miracles and they were still rebellious and still hardened in their hearts. And I want to give kind of a breakdown because as Paul is writing this, he was a participant in persecuting the church he was a man who out of conviction of his Jewish faith said this is a sect this is incorrect how could how could Jesus be the Messiah we need to stop them and he was even given authority to arrest them and possibly send them to capital punishment in other words killing them and look at the turn He has seen the light. The Lord revealed himself. But before the Lord revealed himself to Paul. And changed his heart. And his nature to love Christ. He was a witness. And really sort of like an unofficial leader. Of a stoning. Of the first martyr of the church. Our brother Stephen. I can call him my brother. Because he is my brother in Christ. And he's still alive today. Why? Because he's in heaven in the beatific vision with the Lord. So let's go to Acts 7, 2 to 3. This is Stephen. He's going to give a brief survey of Israel. And I'm not going to hit all the verses, but I want to point out certain ones. The more important ones, in my opinion, in terms of how they deal with the verses that we're looking at. And here it says, And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. And here you see how the Lord worked with this man, this pagan, this idolater, and he chose them and he picked them out, plucked them out of idolatry to love and serve God, the true God, the only God, as we learned in the Sunday school. That already is a merciful and gracious act of the Lord. He didn't choose him because, oh, you know what, Abraham, he's rich. Let's choose him. Or, wow, he's got faith. He didn't have anything. He didn't even know God existed. He was living in his own world. An idolater with a lot of money. And God said, I'm going to use you. And I'm going to build a nation. Let's go to Acts 7, 5 through 6. Here's Stephen again saying, Yet he gave him no inheritance in it. And that is the land. Not even a foot's length. But promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. Here the Lord is saying, I've made you a promise of an inheritance of a land. I'm not going to give it to you. I'm going to give it to your offspring. And before that, I'm going to put you guys to the test. 400 years you're going to be oppressed by a king by another pagan nation what will you do for god will you love him will you obey his commands see here we're seeing little by little how god works he tests his people and we are called to do what is right and obey even when sometimes we're in despair amen to that Now, as that was happening, Stephen is now going to jump to Joseph. So in the time between Abraham and Joseph, there are what we call the patriarchs. We have, uh, we have Isaac and we have Jacob who is renamed Israel. And Jacob has 12 sons. And one of them is Joseph. But there is a jealousy that is arising with Joseph from his brothers. And here Stephen speaks in Acts 7, 9 through 10. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. This, in one sense, is a type. What do we mean by type? You see similarities of something in the future or something else that is actually more grand and more great. Here you're seeing a type of the Messiah. The patriarchs, the Jews, the leaders of the Jews are rejecting and jealous of the most loved of Jacob. In one sense, the anointed one. And what do they do? They sell him to Egypt. Well, they sell him to traders that eventually take him to Egypt. They could have killed him, but God intervened in that and did not allow him to be killed, and was sent to Egypt for a specific purpose. And that's where Stephen jumps. But before he—excuse um, me—before he jumps, he does mention a little fact. He says in verses 11 through 13. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction. And our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers. Those are the patriarchs. Joseph's brothers. On their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Here we see in the survey of Israel... How now the Jews have come to be part of Egypt and they're given a land because of the faithfulness of Joseph. And then God, as he sends a famine, this is what brings the Jews down to Egypt to be tested and eventually oppressed for 400 years. Stephen jumps then to Moses in verses 35 and 36, where he says, this Moses... Whom they rejected saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. So as Egypt was oppressing the people of God, this Moses... As we all know the story, we've all seen the Ten Commandments, and I think also the Prince of Egypt, it comes out in there. He is spared from death. His mother puts him in a basket, which in the Hebrew it says in an ark. That should take us back to, to the ark, Noah's ark. as just a kind of a type, a, a symbol. He was spared Pharaoh's daughter found him and he became part of Pharaoh's family. He was not involved really with the Jews very much. And one day he decided to go out there. He witnessed a fight. He got involved. He killed someone. Then later on he came out and he's trying to stop another fight. And that's the reason why they say, who made you a ruler and a judge? Because this Moses comes out there and he's trying to stop them. And they're like, who made you a ruler and a judge? And because of this, he flees. But the Lord brings him back because he has a purpose for Moses. Moses is another type of Messiah. He's the one that's going to redeem Israel out of Egypt. And that's why he says, this man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt. And, he, and they were in the wilderness for 40 years. And as Stephen is breaking this down, you've got to remember, he's... He's being oppressed. He's being attacked. And eventually they will stone him. But he's going through all this because he's convicting the leaders of Israel. And one of those is Paul. Then let's jump down to verses 45 and 47. Our fathers in turn brought it, and that is the tabernacle, in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David... Who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. And here he's explaining as God dwells with man in the tabernacle. David decides, I want to build a house for you, Lord. And the Lord says, a house will be built for me. But it's going to be done by your son because you have too much blood on your hands. Later on, we're going to get into what that blood is that was on his hands. But God here is working with his people. He's going to dwell among them and they're going to come and sacrifice to him. He is giving them all these ways of worshiping and adoring their Lord. And this is where you see as Stephen is finally getting to the end of his speech where he shows how Israel has rejected God and his Messiah. In verses 51 through 53, Stephen says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. Whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. That is the conviction that is being given to Israel saying, You've continued to reject those that I have sent to you. That's the Lord, those that the Lord has sent to you. And eventually I sent you my son. And you betrayed him and you murdered him. So you ask yourself, what advantage has the Jew? They had all the advantages. And they rebelled. How many of us, especially living in a first world country like the United States, we have all the advantages to worship our Lord and we take that for granted? And it's not until the Lord has to do something drastic in our lives for us to come back. Some already Christians who have fallen into a backslidden state. And those that were never really Christians and they were just professing Christianity. But they weren't really Christians. The Holy Spirit was not guiding their heart. That should be the conviction that we see when we read these things as they apply to our lives. Now in the second point, I want to show how God works in covenants. As mentioned before, in the last sermon, our pastor was going through circumcision and how it's the sign of the covenant. And that's that we see, as Paul writes in the first verse of chapter three, he says, "Or what is the value of circumcision?" And I would like to cite for you Genesis 17:10 through11. God speaking here saying this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Here you see how the Lord has made this sign, this gracious sign because he could just say I don't want to work with you. He has given them a sign of a covenant that they are supposed to keep. And we know that the Lord keeps it faithfully because our God is perfect, pure, and holy. And Paul elaborates on this covenant. This is a covenant that as it became the nation of Israel. It's called the Sinaitic Covenant. So the covenant that was given to Abraham is the covenant of grace. But the covenant that was given to Israel in Mount Sinai is more of a covenant it's still a gracious covenant but it is more of a covenant of works for the nation of Israel, not for individual salvation, but for the nation of Israel. Look how Paul describes it in Galatians 4:22 through 26 and also verse 31. He says, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. So that's symbolically for those. He's using that story as an analogy for what he's trying to prove. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar. Now Hagar is children. But the Jerusalem above is free. And she is our mother. And as verse 31 says. So brothers we are not children of the slave. But of the free woman. Israel individually individual people were under the covenant of grace that circumcision of the foreskin that should lead to should be a symbol and a sign of the circumcision in the heart but as a nation they had the Sinaitic covenant this was a covenant as you see we'll see here in Exodus 24 6-8 where God Gives them this covenant as a nation to follow, to obey. But always were the people of God individually saved through the covenant of grace. Looking forward to the Messiah, are the Old Testament saints. And now we look back to our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Our faith in Him as salvation. So read here in Exodus 24, 6 through 8. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. And half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. And said behold the blood of the covenant. That the Lord has made with you. In accordance with all these words. So here you see. The people. Have stated. As a congregation. As a nation. That we will do. What the Lord has spoken. And we will be obedient. But they were not. As a people they were not. We continue to see the rebelliousness of the Jews. Of the nation of Israel. They were given all the advantages. They were given the covenants. And they still rejected our Lord. But the Lord made them a promise. In Jeremiah 31. 31 through 32. Where he said. Behold the days are coming declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke though I was their husband declares the Lord. Here the Lord in his gracious good pleasure is telling the people of Israel. I'm going to reestablish and make a new covenant with you as a reestablishment of the covenant of grace because that covenant that was given to you when I held your hand and took you out of Egypt, that covenant on Mount Sinai, you broke. Do you see now how God is faithful even when we are faithless? That's what we need to take. That needs to be in the background of everything that we're talking about. Now the Jews were given the oracles of God as a rule of life as we've, we've spoken about. And that's mentioned in verse two. And for context, I'm actually going to read verse one and two where it says, Then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision much in every way to begin with the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. The Jews were given these oracles. And what did they do? They distorted them. They brought in traditions of men. And then they started to talk about something called the oral law. Something separate from the law that God had given them. And that's what the Pharisees were speaking about. And eventually, that is what has morphed into the Jews of today. They look more at the oral law than they do at the written law. Now, I want to read uh, from the Notes on the Bible by Albert Barnes, where he speaks about what is an oracle. And it says, The word oracle among the pagan meant properly the answer or response of a god. So as they're given the oracles of God, right? These Jews were given the oracles of God. This is an answer or a response that God is giving to them. That's why sometimes they call it the book of the covenant. Sometimes they call it the the sayings. Sometimes they, they summarize it into just the Ten Commandments. But the entire law, the law and the prophets was given to the nation of Israel. As it says here in Acts 7.38, this is also actually Stephen speaking where he says, This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel. That is Moses. So Moses is the one who's in the congregation with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. So they were given these oracles. What what was the point of these oracles? The law. What was the point of this, this book of the covenant? It was to be a rule of life. How you practice your relationship and religion. Religion because it's practices of your beliefs. And the relationship because you have a relationship with your Lord. But they did not do that. This is part of the rebelliousness of Israel, the faithlessness of Israel that he's making a point about. Paul is continually speaking. First, he was speaking about the Gentiles, and now he's giving it to the Jews. He's really letting them have it because they think they're superior, they think they have an advantage. And as Jesus said in Matthew 4:4, what's the point of the oracles of God, the word of God? But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That is what we are called to do. Live from every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And the Jews... Israel was rejecting this. Some didn't even know it. The leaders were rejecting it for them. And they were just following. Because they were not reading their Torah. They were not reading the Old Testament. The Tanakh. They were putting their faith in their leaders. And doing what they said. Is that what we're supposed to do? Or are we supposed to. Read our scriptures and test those that are speaking about the word of God. Testing me, testing our pastor, testing our deacons. That's what we're called to do. Because we live by the word of God, not by the word of man. Amen? Amen. (laughs) Now let's go to God's faithfulness in his promises. God has always been faithful. We need to remember that. No matter how bad it gets for some, and I haven't even experienced much. Being here in the United States, I haven't experienced much. There's so many that have experienced hunger, homelessness, attacks. They're afraid that wherever they are, they're going to be persecuted and killed. And here in the United States, what do we worry about? what am I going to eat later today? Am I going to have warm water because somebody else used all the hot water? That's what we're worried about here in the United States and in many other first world countries. When it gets bad, when you feel complete despair, you need to remember the faithfulness of our God. So let's continue on with what Paul wrote, verses 3 and 4, What if some were unfaithful? Now he's speaking about the Jews. Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Does anything cancel out the faithfulness of God? No, it doesn't. As Paul also wrote to Timothy In 2 Timothy 2.13, he said, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. What does that mean? He cannot deny himself. Because God always keeps his promises. He is faithful. He is just. He is holy. He is perfect. He is good. He is everything that we are not. He cannot deny himself. And this is the wonderful affirmation of assurance that we have from our Lord. That although we are called to endure and be faithful. Salvation does not rest ultimately on our faithfulness. But upon the perfect faithfulness of Christ. The Christian hope is rooted firmly in God's unchanging character and his unchangeable redemptive purpose for his elect. We are to trust in God. He does not change. The theologians like to use the word immutable, which has many different facets to it. But one of the main facets is God does not change in anything that is who he is, his attributes. From eternity past, he is perfect, holy, righteous, just, pure, omniscient, omnipowerful. The list of attributes, just go down the list. Always been, they have never changed. And if we believe that, when we're going through trials, when we're in despair, when we're sad, when we're depressed. Do we really believe that? The Jews didn't, unfortunately. The majority of the Jews, the ones that were not part of the remnant of Israel, did not believe that. And they had the oracles of God. Is that us too? Is that the church? That's where we need to have our hope. As Christians, our hope is in our God. Who does not change. He keeps his promises. He has told us. By assuring us. That if we are saved. And we are justified. We will be glorified. And we will be with our Lord. For all eternity. Worshipping him. And in fellowship. With our spiritual family. That's the promises of God. So that begs the question as we go to the next point. Is God just in his judgment? When he makes judgments on people, whether they are the people of God or not, is he just? Of course, the answer is yes, he is. He is never changing. His justice is perfect. As Paul ends Verse four, where he says, Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. This is an interesting statement. If you really, really get down to it, I didn't notice it the first probably three, four times that I've read it in my life until now that I'm really going through it. And it goes, What do you mean prevail when you are judged? Who's judging God? That's an interesting statement. So before we get to what this entails, Paul is citing this from Psalm 51. This is a psalm of David, the famous psalm where he is in repentance and in a contrite heart has written this psalm to show us his faithfulness to god but what does a contrite heart mean we have two words right contrition and attrition sometimes you know we're like what what does that mean attrition is when you're sorry because you were caught as you see many times especially like in hollywood these people that were caught doing something and they're, they're sorry. But are they really sorry? They're just sorry because they got caught. But what is contrition? Contrition is true sorrow and repentance for what you have done. And in the context of God, which should be everything anyway, but unfortunately not everybody thinks that way. When it comes to God, are we really sorry that we have violated his laws? That we have hurt and blasphemed his name with our actions that's what you got to ask yourself are you just sorry because you know the brother over there he caught me that i wasn't doing this or i wasn't doing or i was doing this that i shouldn't have been doing or are you i can't believe i did this i violated what god said that's what we have to remember we need to have a contrite heart and that's what psalm 51 is all about But why is David so much in sorrow and asking for forgiveness and in repenting what he has done? What did he do? Many know the story of David. He saw a woman showering and he said, I want her. And he went and he had an affair. And to hide his affair, that woman's husband was put in the front line to be killed i mean that's pretty much murder just you didn't do it with your own hands but you you're the one who's causing it and in his cover-up and all this nowhere did you see um him be sorrow be, be sorrowful for what he's done nowhere in the scriptures does it say that Until the Lord sends a prophet. Prophet Nathan. And that's what we're going to pick up. In 2 Samuel 12. 13 through 14. David said to Nathan. After Nathan had explained everything. And actually told him in a parable. David said to Nathan. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David. The Lord also has put away your sin you shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. This is a very harsh and strong statement. Who sinned? The child didn't sin. Why is a child being put to death? I can tell you that of all the sins that I've done in my life. And of all the sins that my wife has done in, my, in her life. If God were to say, you guys are okay. I'm not going to punish you. I'm going to punish your kids. I don't know how I would react. <laughs> I don't know how I would feel. I'm sure I would be extremely sad and depressed. But. Would that lead me to despair? Would that lead me to reject God? Would that lead me to be rebellious and unfaithful to our Lord? I don't want to find out. I'll tell you that. We need to think about this. Is the justice of God, is that judgment that he made, so is his justice perfect and correct and true by reading this? you find that God is just in punishing and killing to a, to a one sense, not letting him live the child of this affair. That is a strong statement. That's, that's getting to the heart of this matter. But let me tell you something. God is just. He is perfectly just. Why? Why? Because the consequence of sin is death. The wages of sin are death. The Lord being gracious said your sin is put away. You have been forgiven. And somebody else is taking your place. Does that sound familiar? Do we deserve that? No. We deserve death. Because we violate God, a perfect and holy and righteous God. And that's what Paul is citing. Let's read Psalm 51, 4. This is actually the text, the Hebrew from from David, where it says, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words, And blameless in your judgment. Paul is citing the Greek where it actually says and prevail when you are judged. Do we constantly, and you might not even realize that you are. But we know for sure the world does this. Do you constantly question the judgments of God? Why God? Why did you let me go through this? Why are these people bothering me? Why did you allow me to fall in that sin? Don't we do that? That is something that we continually do. And here we see that the Lord is blameless in his judgment. And when we're putting him to the test, when we're taking him to court and saying, what are you doing? He prevails when we judge him because God is blameless. He is perfect. He is holy. So he is just. In his judgment. So how do we apply this. To our daily practice. We've kind of spoken. A little bit of it. First point that I want to make. Is how Israel is. In relation to the church. As God called Israel. And, and we'll see this in Exodus. nineteen five through 6. These are God's people. Who are serving him. And are supposed to then be a witness to the nations. Exodus nineteen five through 6 says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel, because he's telling this to Moses. They are to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. As we've spoken about many times, what does holy mean? It is separate, it is a cut above. When you separate something for the Lord, that is holy, and it's for the Lord, not for anybody else. That's his due. And he's gracious enough to only allow us to take out certain things in certain contexts. But in our lives, it is the, our entire life we're a rule of obedience to the Lord. This same type of statement that he gave to Israel, he also gave to the church that is written in First Peter. It says, but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light once you were not a people but now you are God's people once you had not received mercy But now you have received mercy. That is a strong statement. Because we don't deserve mercy. We deserve death. And out of his good pleasure, he has shown us mercy. And he has told us to be a royal priesthood. A holy nation. That's also sort of reiterated in Revelation 1, 5 through 6. Where it says, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen that is the God we serve he has purchased us with his blood and we are to be a holy nation we are to be separate from the world and we are to obey our God now what does priesthood being priests mean i want to give this citation from the Lexham bible dictionary where it says the Pentateuch, and that is the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, emphasizes two functions of the Israelite priesthood. Number one, to keep the people faithful to God by acting as intermediaries. And number two, to help the people make atonement, that is reconciliation between God and people for their sins in the light of their apostasy. As kingdom of priests, as a royal priesthood, we are called to be that intermediary from, between God and the world. We are to be a witness. We are to preach the gospel. We are to disciple the nations. And in turn, that is a reconciliation that will happen between God and man when the Holy Spirit works in their hearts. But we have to go out there and do the, and do the, be the vessels that God is going to use, be the secondary cause. what God has said, is, through you I'm going to do this. We are called to do that and we are called to be witnesses because we are a holy nation. So as the relation between Israel and church, this is what they were called to do. But here comes a warning. Israel was having a big problem with the pagan nations around them. And that's what we've called syncretism. It's just a fancy word. Because it means they're bringing in their gods, the gods of the pagans with theirs. And they're mixing. And that's the problem that I'm seeing with the church. And I think you guys are seeing it too that in the church's desire to not be be anti-woke or contemporary in the practices and the beliefs of the cultures, they fail to resist the temptation of being conformed to the patterns of this world. Many times we see churches where instead of sticking to the word of God, And to worship songs that are theologically sound. And why do we say theologically sound? Because the words that we're saying need to be truth and gratifying to the Lord. We are not speaking falsehoods. We do not believe in a reckless love of God. We believe in a perfect love of God. A faithful love of God. A holy love of God. Now God said this to the nation of Israel in Leviticus 18, 24 through 28. Listen to these words. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. For by all these, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations so that the land became unclean, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean. As it vomited out the nation that was before you. This is a very strong statement. Because many people think. Why did God get rid of all those nations. And put his nation in there. What did those nations do? They didn't do anything against our Lord. Oh yes they did. They were an abomination to the Lord. Because they practiced. What the Lord has called us not to do. To stay away from Just before this, he had spoken about sexual immorality, he had spoken about incest and a few other things. Why even name them? We know them. We know what it is. The Lord is telling them, don't do these things. You will become unclean. I will vomit you out of the out of the land, just like I did these nations. So how does this apply to us? This he's speaking to Israel. This is a nation. This is old stuff. It doesn't matter now. Does it? What does John say in 1 John 2, 15 through 17? Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Yeah, that's strong. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh... And the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. It's always gracious to see that the Lord rebukes us and tells us not to do something and then tells us this is what you're going to get. You're going to be with me forever. Why are you going to be with me forever? Because you're doing the will of God. How can I do the will of God? Because the Lord has given us a new nature, a new disposition. The Holy Spirit is guiding us. This is what I'm afraid of, that I'm seeing in what we call the visible church. The visible church is those that you can see with your eyes because the invisible church are the true elect. Yes, the the invisible church is also part of the visible church. But when we look at people in... In service, even now, I can look around. I don't know your hearts. I don't know if you're saved or not. The Bible gives me assurances, but I don't know. When I see the visible church, when I go out and I look at all the churches around, you, we can name names, you know. One of the big ones, Kenneth Copeland, his church. Joel Olstein, all these prosperity gospels. They're embracing the love of the world the desires of money and being rich and having prosperity in this world while millions of Christians in third world countries are being persecuted and killed. Doesn't make any sense. That, my Bible doesn't say that. My Bible says, abide by the will of God. Do not conform to this world. And the question is, how do we do this in our churches? How do we keep people from falling for these Prosperity Gospels and falling for for any doctrine, any false doctrine that comes in. What does Hebrews 5, 12 through 13 tell us? For though by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. What does this mean? Spiritually speaking, if you've been a Christian for five years, you should know more and be skilled in the word of God than when you were a Christian five months in. If you're a Christian 50 years and somebody asks you, The reformers talked about justification by faith. What does that mean? And you don't know? That's a very big problem because justification by faith is one of the differences between the Protestant churches and the Roman Catholic churches. Right? We know the Trinity. Not everybody can explain it perfectly. And there's incomprehensibility to it because there's just things that God has not revealed in its totality. And our brains can't really understand everything. But we know that God is three in one. Why? Because in the Shema, God says he is one. And then it is revealed that he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But if you don't believe that Jesus is God, you're actually, it's even less than milk. Because that's one of the standards. So what do we need to do? We need to teach our churches, our children, the people around us. And as we bring in and more people come, we need to teach them, first starting with the milk and bringing them up to solid food like a baby. They start with milk and they move to solid food because they're growing. So as a Christian, you're growing spiritually. This is a way of keeping us from mixing false doctrines, other gods, into the Christian faith. Second point in our application for daily practice. Is God will never fail in his promises. We've been given. In, in the word of God. We've been given that covenant of grace. That was given to Abraham. As it says. In Genesis seventeen four through 7. Behold my covenant is with you. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram. But your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations. And kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you. And your offspring after you throughout their generations. For an everlasting covenant. To be God to you and to your offspring after you. The promise given to Abraham, our spiritual father, is given to us. God will keep his everlasting covenant with us and with our offspring. We must not mix the world. But even when we have in our, in our lives, God is faithful in his promises. He can call us and take us out of false doctrine, sin, apostasy, you name it, addictions, anything, because that is God. And as Paul reiterated this in Romans 4, which we will get to in a few weeks from now, where it says, that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham who is the father of us all as it is written I have made you the father of many nations what is the promise when he says the father of many nations Israel was just one nation so that's not who he's speaking about he's speaking about all the nations now that we are discipling the nations now that we've been given the great commission the the faith of Abraham is going out through the entire world and we are part of it. God is keeping His promises. As Paul also said in Galatians 3:28 through 29, "There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise." That is a beautiful, gracious, merciful statement. Both showing the faithfulness of God and how merciful he is with us. And as I get to my last point in our application of daily practice, it's God's gracious mercy. We do not deserve it. That's why it is gracious. We deserve death because of our sin, our rebelliousness. And God in his mercy good pleasure and his grace has shown us mercy as it says in Isaiah thirty eighteen. 18 therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you for the Lord is a God of justice blessed are all those who wait for him man That hits me here. God, who is a God of justice, what does that mean? I deserve to be cut off. Instead, He has shown me mercy, He has shown us mercy. Every breath I take, right, is merciful. It is God's gift. And let me tell you, brothers and sisters, and to those listening there is still time there is still time to repent trust Christ live for him make him the lord of your life as peter tells us in second peter 3 8 through 9 but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any of you would perish, but that all should reach Repentance. There is still time. The call is there. Repent of your sins and follow Christ. And if you're following Christ, continually repent of your sins and ask for forgiveness. For we are called to be holy. And what do we profess? What is our creed? what is our statement of faith what do we believe in the simplest terms what the church has believed for 2,000 years is stated in the Apostles Creed I believe in God the Father Almighty maker of heaven and earth and in Jesus Christ his only begotten Son our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Ghost born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. That is, he took the wrath of God. The third day he arose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, that is the universal church in the entire world, the multitude of nations, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. That is our creed as a church for the last 2,000 years. So I call you to repent of your sins, Believe and trust in God and profess this creed, this statement of faith of what we believe. Let's pray. Oh, dear Father God and our Lord Jesus Christ, our Comforter, Holy Spirit. You are great. You are awesome. You are holy and you are just in your judgments. But you are also merciful. You have shown us mercy, the mercy that we do not deserve. And for that we are eternally grateful. We will live for you, and if we have to, we will die for you because you are our Lord. You are our sustainer, you are our provider. And in you we trust. You are our refuge and our rock. Thank you, Lord, for all that you've done for us. And thank you, Lord, for your word. Because that is how you speak to us. For all these things and everything that we've read and heard is to the glory of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And in him we pray. Amen.